We're going to be focusing on Job, folks, so we're back in Job. And there are all sorts of providential connections between what Russell uh, read to us and and what uh, we're going to discover in Job. But um, we are in Job, uh, just in case you were wondering. So Job uh, chapter 40, we're going to be all over. So keep one finger in the front of Job, keep one finger in the back. I think that'll help us. Uh, We'll navigate a bit around the book of Job. Let me open in a word of prayer. Father, as always, we need to see your glory, and uh, we only truly see it in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. So please, Father, will you open our eyes to see your glory this morning? Please, will you come to us uh, that we might worship you in humility and integrity? Please, will you come to us in and through our repentance and faith? And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. As believers, there are two realities that face us every single moment of every single day. The reality of our lived experience and the reality of our living God. Sometimes it's difficult to know how to reconcile these two realities. We know that God is in charge. But so often, things can feel out of control. We know that God is good, but so often it feels as though evil is winning. We know that God loves us, but so often we feel desperately alone. How is God running this world? What is his plan? If the world is like this, what is God like? This is the internal struggle that every single believer faces. As I describe it, I don't imagine that it's foreign to you. And in fact, this is the struggle that Job faced. And what we want to look at today is just how Job dealt with this struggle. The struggle of reconciling the reality of the living God with the reality of our lived experience. So if you remember back... Two weeks ago now, we have come to the end of Job. The Lord has spoken from the storm. We are now in a position to evaluate Job and his response. And in fact, we don't have to because the Lord himself does that for us. Go to Job chapter 42 verse 7. Job chapter 42 verse 7. Very key verse for us in understanding the whole book. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. The Lord says that the friends spoke what was wrong, and Job spoke what was right. When Job was speaking to his friends, trying to resolve this struggle, When he was disputing with them, what kind of things did he say? Well, let's go back a few weeks and actually quite a few chapters. Let's go all the way back to Job chapter 3, right to the beginning, and have a listen. So keep one finger in Job 42, because we'll spend a lot of time at the end. But let's go back to the beginning. Job chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. 
Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Skip ahead to verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I at quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. What could possibly be right about that? Job spoke what was right. What was right about that? It sounds like Job is complaining about his very existence. He says to God, why did you even make me? He curses life itself. He seems to go further and curse, curse all of creation. What could possibly be right about that? We'll come back to it. For now, let's see how Job finishes. Chapter 3 is where he starts. Let's take a look at where he ends up. So after the Lord's first speech, back to chapter 40. After the Lord's first speech, this is what Job says. Pick it up in verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then after the Lord's second speech, this is what he says. Now Job chapter 42, from verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that, that hides counsel without knowledge? There he's quoting the Lord. You remember that's what the Lord said to him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Guys, I'm really struggling with the sound. Uh, Jeremy, Matt, if you guys can help me, there's some sort of echo. Um, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. So now this is Job responding to the Lord. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. The Lord again, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Job responds, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The question we're asking is, what did Job say that was right? What is right about his response? Clearly, it must be something in his conversation with his friends because that's what the Lord refers to when he gives his positive evaluation of what Job said. Remember what he said, 42 verse 7, Eliphaz, you did not speak right like my servant Job did. So whatever is right is not limited to what Job says at the end. 
It must also be there in his dialogue with his friends. But what is it? The first thing right about Job's response is his integrity. Such an important word in the book of Job, integrity. Comes right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. Job was blameless and upright. That word blameless means he was a man of integrity. Nobody knows a man like his wife. And in chapter 2, verse 9, Job's wife scoffs at him and says, Are you still holding on to your integrity? And of course he was, and he refused to let go. In 27, verse 5, Job tells his friends he would rather die than let go of his integrity. But what is this integrity? What is this blamelessness? Well, it's not, and we can say this emphatically, it is not a claim to a sinless life. Because Job admits his sin several times throughout the dialogue. So what is it? It's the idea of wholeness, of completeness. In the Bible, when that Hebrew word for integrity is applied to a man's children, it means all of his children. When it's applied to time, it means the whole day. No part of the day is left out. Uh, When it's applied to words, it means the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. When it is applied to a man, it means that what you see is what you get. What you see is true of the whole man. He's not holding anything back. He's not concealing anything. There's no hidden agenda. There's no secret sin. The outside is the same as the inside. The public man is the same as the private man. And we see this so clearly in Job chapter 3. Remember those words I read a moment ago? Job cannot be accused of not saying what he really feels. He can be accused of all sorts of things. But he can't be accused of not saying what he really feels. You're not going to read Job chapter 3 and go, come on, Job, tell us what you really think. He was not sinless. He was not perfectly right in what he said about God or the way he said it. But the things he said, he truly felt. And so he was a man of integrity. He was a whole man in the sense that the inside and the outside were not divided. And the Lord commends him for it. You see, Job doesn't pretend that he doesn't have questions. Job asks the question, why, six times in that chapter I've just read. Six times in one chapter, why? And the Lord Jesus Christ asks the very same question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? God wants us to come to him as his children. And so he doesn't want us to pretend. Those of you who engage with kids on a regular basis, our parents, our teachers, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles, Those children in your life, when they come to you, do you want them to pretend? They've made a terrible mess of things. But you want them to come as if they've got it all together. They are in terrible trouble. But they must play the part of responsible individuals. 
They are really deeply, deeply afraid. But when they come into your presence, they must put on a brave face. Is that what you want for them? You would never want that for them. Well, how much less does God want that for you? Job pours out his heart to God. He brings what's on the inside out into the light, and he is commended for it. Do you see that that's an invitation to us? We are so used to pretending to each other. We are so socialized into what a good Christian would do or say or feel or think in this or that situation. When we pray together, we are so often praying to each other and for the benefit of each other's hearing rather than praying to the Lord. When we speak, we choose words that will hold us in the best light. We qualify everything with, I don't mean this, and I'm not saying that. We are dying on the inside, but we say things like, God is good all the time. True enough. Not questioning that for one second, but do we really mean it when we say it? Dostoevsky, Russian novelist, uh, wrote a brilliant little story called The Idiot. You know who the idiot was in the story? A man who consistently told the truth. A man of integrity. What does that tell us about society? When we meet a Christian who's honest about their struggles, it's so refreshing. What does that tell us about who we are? And we pretend to each other because we pretend to ourselves. I'm basically a good person. I've pretty much got this under control. And because we're so good at pretending to each other and to ourselves, we go that one dreadful, insane step further and we try to pretend to God himself. Read as an antidote to all of that, as a tonic to all of that, read Job chapter 3. Job poured out the thickest, blackest parts of his soul, and God commends this man for his integrity. He is inviting us to do the same. Now, of course, we approach God with reverence. We approach him with fear and trembling, with the majesty due his name. But pour out your soul to him. What is it? Whatever's in there. Lord, if I'm honest, I feel nothing for you. Lord, right now, I really don't want you in my life. Lord, I know I'm supposed to be full of joy, but quite honestly, I don't even know what joy feels like anymore. Don't hold back because he already knows and he wants you, not some manufactured Sunday best version of yourself. He doesn't want your profile picture. He wants you. Integrity. What else did Job get right? Humility. Time and time and time again during the dispute with his friends, Job demanded to speak to the Lord. He wanted the Lord to explain himself. And yet, when the Lord finally does speak, listen again to how Job responds. 
So striking. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand upon my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then after the Lord has spoken a second time, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job finally comes to know what he doesn't know and what he cannot know. He finally discovers the limits to his capacity to know. I am of small account. I lay my hand on my mouth. I have uttered things too wonderful for me. And then he repents in dust and ashes. What does he repent of? The pride that demands to know. The pride that demands to know so that I can evaluate God against my standards. So that I can measure him against my canon. The pride that refuses to accept that you cannot know and that you actually can't cope with that kind of knowledge. Remember two weeks back to know, to understand, you have to have been there from the beginning. You have to have laid the foundation of the universe. You have to have heard the angels sing for joy on that first morning. You have to have shut in the sea and walked in the recesses of the deep, close to the gates of death. Do you see what you are demanding when you demand to know so that you can evaluate? You are demanding to be God himself. It's a bit like the five-year-old who walks up to the chief astrophysicist at NASA and demands to know how this rocket is going to get to Mars. Of course, there's some things that the scientist can share, but little Johnny's demand for full disclosure only demonstrates the fullness of his ignorance. He doesn't even know what he doesn't know. It's like that with us. When we demand to know. And we, like Job, need to repent of that pride and accept that God alone can know. And God alone can evaluate. And actually, there's enormous freedom in that for us. Because the one who can know is also the only one who can be trusted with that knowledge. That leads us into the third, and I think the fundamental thing that Job got right. If he got something right, this is it. Worship. From the very beginning, Job wanted God for God. Why in chapter 3 does he curse the day he was born when from that day onward he enjoyed such enormous blessing? Why does he curse creation when creation gave him such incredible bounty? Why doesn't he just curse the suffering and ask for the good old days to return? I mean, that's what we would expect, isn't it? A lament for the loss of the good old days. But what we see instead is Job wishing that even the good old days themselves never existed. He curses them and himself out of existence. Why? I think we have a clue. If you can flip back to the beginning. Sorry, we are bouncing around. Chapter 3, verse 23. 
Here's our clue. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? In other words, Job's bitter question is this. Isn't it better not to live or not to have lived at all than to live and be cut off from God? Isn't it better to never have existed than to exist as God's enemy? The loss he is feeling more than anything else is what he perceives to be the loss of God's friendship. He looks at all his suffering and he feels he has lost the friendship of God. He concludes that it is better not to live at all than to live without God. And he's very consistent in that conclusion. He holds that conclusion right the way through to the very end of the book. So at the end of chapter 13, he cries out to God, Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? You see? You see his heart's cry? He feels he's lost the friendship of God. 16 verse 9, God has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth against me. My adversary, the Lord, sharpens his eyes against me. Again, in 19 verse 11, his anger burns against me and he considers me among his enemies. And yet, in 29 verse 4, he longs for the days when he used to experience the intimate friendship of the Lord. You see, Job wants God for God. And that's why he can curse all of life apart from God, out of existence. He wants nothing to do with it, even the good old days. He says it is better not to exist than to be God-forsaken. This is Job. He desperately wants God for God, not God for what he can give me. We call this response worship. Worship, if you look at the word, is ascribing worth. You worship whatever you think has supreme worth, supreme value. Job worships God from start to finish. He wants God's friendship more than material blessing. And at the end, he says to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. At last... Job is satisfied. He no longer needs answers because he has God. He no longer needs the blessings of this life because he has God. It's called worship. C.S. Lewis says, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. I'm going to read it again because it's a little tricky, but it's so profound. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. And Job was both men, wasn't he? He was the man who had God and everything else. And then he was the man who had God only. And by the end of the book, it's very clear that what he had was the same throughout. Job worships God and his worship is the basis 
the bedrock, if you like, for his humility and his integrity. His humility and his integrity grow out of his worship of the Lord. His vision of God is what leads him into the humility of repentance. It is seeing God for God that helps him to truly see himself as he really is. Seeing God for God is what makes him completely content with his ignorance. The whole book, he's railing against his ignorance. Then he sees God for God, and now he's content. He's satisfied. He has not a single answer. But he's happy. He's fulfilled without answers because he has God. He doesn't need God and answers. He knows that the man who has God and every answer to every single question has no more than the man who just has God himself. His worship of God is what leads him into humility. His worship of God is what also leads him into integrity. Knowing God for God means that he knew there was no point in hiding anything. There was certainly no point in admitting to secret sins that he hadn't committed, which is what the friends were badgering him to do. But to do that would be seeking the favor of men, not the favor of God. That would be the worship of man, not the worship of God. Our question, the question we've been trying to answer is, how did Job respond rightly? Here's the summary. Worship and therefore humility and integrity. Let's just pause here and ask ourselves the obvious question. Are we responding rightly? Do we want God for God? Or do we want God for what he can give us? Do we sing and pray and live a certain way just out of the pure joy of knowing God? Or because we expect a payoff at the end? Is God a means to an end? Or is he an end in himself? Job got to look into the heart of the storm. We've said this every week. Say it again, we have seen so much more than he could ever see. Because we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have read the Gospels and the Epistles. We have walked with Jesus as individuals and as a community, as a family. And so we've seen God in a way that Job never could. Here's the question. Is God enough? Are you satisfied right now? Completely. If I put a hundred billion US dollars in your bank this moment, pulled out my phone, because I can of course, transferred a hundred billion US dollars into your account, would you feel it hasn't really added anything? It hasn't really changed anything? Because I have God. Do you feel like you have it all? Because you have God. I don't need answers. I have the Lord. I have God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If not, and I suspect that's most of us, the solution is not to feel guilty. The solution is to look again into the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because obviously, 
we've missed something. We may be looking, but we're not seeing what's there. And so that's what we do every week, week by week by week. We gaze deep and long and hard into the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because if we have him, we have everything. And if we don't have him, we may have everything else, but still have nothing. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was stripped utterly naked and yet he fell on the ground and worshipped, and he maintained that posture throughout the whole book. He blessed the name of the Lord. True worship, God for God, will sustain us in the chaos and the sin of this life. But false worship, God for his gifts, that is going to fall in a heap the moment there's either adversity or success. The moment calamity strikes or the moment you get what you really wanted all along. What use is God? Either God didn't do his job or he did do his job. Whichever one it is, the contract is over. He's dismissed. I was talking to a a young man in our church who was raised in this brand of Christianity. He was telling me that in those circles, God is there to help you get the job or the degree or the wife. And the moment you have those things, you're in a sort of a crisis because what use is there for God? And yet those of us of a certain age, we know that those things, the degree, the job, the spouse, they just don't satisfy the deepest yearnings of our souls. We marvel at how Job's integrity survived his poverty and his suffering. But you know what might be even more marvelous than that? That his integrity survived his wealth and his riches. Abraham Lincoln said, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Job was a man of enormous power and wealth and comfort, and yet his character stood the test. The Lord Jesus Christ had all power, all wealth, all comfort in the entire universe, and he gave it away for our sakes. What does that say about his character? Question, how did they do it? How did Job survive his poverty and his wealth? He worshipped God for God. How did the Lord Jesus survive infinitely greater temptations? He loved his Father for his Father. If we worship God, it will humble us. His kindness, beauty, generosity, patience, power, faithfulness, justice, mercy, peace, purity, wisdom, 
Love, it'll show us who we truly are. We will repent. We'll despise any pride in ourselves. And we will stop pretending. We'll stop pretending to each other because we've stopped pretending to ourselves. And we'll stop pretending to ourselves because we know you simply cannot pretend to God. Worship and therefore humility and integrity. The right response in riches or poverty, in feast or famine, in victory or defeat. The right response in the chaos of this uncertain world. So go out now and be people of worship, humility, and integrity. That's the great danger, isn't it? The great danger is that's what you hear me saying. The story of Job has a moral. And the moral of the story is be people of worship, humility, and integrity. Now go and do it. If you heard that, it would be an unmitigated disaster. Because that is nothing but the counsel of the false friends. So how do we avoid that disaster? Let me switch metaphors and just let's try and explain it this way. We've been looking at the fruit of Job's response. What we need to do before we move off and conclude is look at the roots of his response. We need to dig our fingers into the root structure because Job's response ultimately is not a testimony to the conduct and character of Job. It is a testimony to the conduct and character of God. After we've read this book, we are not supposed to go away marveling at who Job was and what he did. We're supposed to walk away marveling at who God is and what he's done and how he governs his world. All of Job's responses are born out of who God is and what he's done. The way that we Christians talk about this is in the language of repentance and faith. Those words just describe how we receive who God is and what he's done. Faith is just trusting God. Faith is trusting in Jesus' response to the Father on our behalf. Jesus is the man, after all, of deepest humility, purest integrity, and perfect worship. His response opens the way and gives life to our response. Our response is just a witness to his. Faith is trusting in him. And repentance is just withdrawing trust from anything else. Repentance and faith are the roots of Job's profound response to the Lord in the midst of chaos and crisis. And they'll be the roots of our response as well. Because the chaos and crisis of this world is constantly tempting us to read the character and conduct of God off of our circumstances and to stop trusting in Jesus. It's a constant struggle. Listen to how Herman Bavick describes it. There is no faith without struggle. Do you hear that? Those of us who are struggling to trust this morning, there is no faith without struggle. None. It doesn't exist. 
There is no faith without struggle. To believe is to struggle. To struggle against the appearance of things. That's the story of Job, isn't it? Isn't the story of Job just a record of one man's long, painful struggle against the appearance of things? And isn't it the Christian life? Isn't that your life? It is. My brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is. It's a life of faith and therefore it's a life of struggle against the appearance of things. You look at your life. You look at the kind of year we've had. You look at your relationship with your spouse or with those close to you. You look at that repossession letter from the bank. You look at the COVID statistics or the unemployment statistics. You look at this business that's about to fall in a heap. You look at News 24. You look at your whole lived experience. You look around and you say, where is the living God? Is he in control? Does he really love me? What is it that keeps you from answering no? What is it that keeps you from giving up the struggle against the appearance of things? What is it? Only one thing. The empty tomb. Let's pray. Father, you are glorious and we want to respond appropriately to your glory. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who responded for us in perfect humility, integrity, and worship. Please help us, Father, to go out and live out of the free gift of his life and death. Please help us in the midst of the chaos to struggle against the appearance of things and to trust that which never moves or changes, that which reminds us of who you truly are, the empty tomb the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.